Now, we've been studying John chapter 10, and we've walked through a number of verses, but he actually doesn't say that he's the good shepherd until verse 11. I am the good shepherd, but the whole theme has been on the theme of Jesus as the good shepherd. Now, as we've stepped into this text, if you're even with us new this day, we've noted that the context is key. Obviously, we're picking up in John chapter 10, but the good shepherd, that theme in chapter 10, is contrasted in the previous chapter with the Pharisees and their dialogue with a man that was born blind in John chapter 9. He healed that man that was born blind. And one of the things I just note for you, and I've said this last week, I just want you to recognize the audience is the same from chapter 9 to chapter 10. One of the reasons why we believe it's the same audience is look over to 1021. You'll note there that it says at the end of 1021, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so you're really reading here from chapter 9 to chapter 10, but there's no gap, there's no time gap in the text. There's no statement in the text in 10.1 that says, after these things, or it would be customary to say, on the next day. It doesn't say that. In other words, he is speaking to the healed blind man, he is speaking to the disciples, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's speaking to others who were present in the crowd. So as we come into chapter 10, there's a contrast between the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the false shepherds in chapter 9, and those are the Pharisees, as it's stated. Now, you remember that this blind man, look back in 934. They answered him in 934, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And in this statement, and they cast him out. In other words, here he was, born blind. Jesus comes in, heals him in the synagogue. And rather than giving glory to God, they begin to question him. And he begins to testify. And he gave his life to Christ. It's obviously in chapter 9. He not only opened his eyes, but he opened this man to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And rather than giving glory to God, they actually cast this man out of the synagogue. You remember if you look down in verse 41 of chapter 9, Jesus said to them, and he's speaking there when it said to them in 41, if you go back to verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. In other words, the Pharisees thought they were the teachers of the law. They would, you know, pride themselves on bringing people to the truth when Jesus actually said back in the Gospels, as you, tr- you travel land and sea to make a proselyte, and once you've done that, you've made him twice as much a son of hell. And so here as we walk into chapter 10, these religious leaders back in 9 are the thieves and the robbers who destroy. In fact, look at chapter 10. He said there in verse 1, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. You'll notice down in verse 8, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. Verse 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so here, the religious leaders are contrasted They're obviously the thieves and the robbers in the text. Jesus profoundly is the good shepherd. Now, our Lord in John chapter 10 is taking a figure of speech. He's talking about the metaphor of shepherding. 
He's talking about a shepherd. He's talking about a sheepfold. He's talking about a door of the sheepfold. He's talking about entering into that door. He's talking about the thieves and the robbers who climb in another way other than the door. Obviously, he's speaking in a metaphor. In fact, look at verse 6 just to show you there with your eyes. In chapter 10, in verse 6, this he actually calls it a figure of speech Jesus used with them. So he's speaking in a figure of speech. It is not the Greek word for parable. So we don't call this the parable of the good shepherd. He's using a figure of speech and making a profound spiritual application for us. Now you know if you've been around the things of the Lord for a little while, there's a rich metaphor here. There were a number of shepherds both in reality, literal in the Old Testament and the New, but also that figure of speech was used to talk about God as a shepherd. In fact, in the Old Testament, the ultimate shepherd of the flock was God. Certainly, Abraham was a shepherd, David was a shepherd, but the ultimate shepherd was God. Because you remember in Psalm 23, the Lord is my, what? Shepherd. And so there's a picture of God in the Old Testament as the shepherd who finds you and brings you back. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 23, there God is the shepherd. It says that God will one day bring back the sheep and appoint good shepherds over the flock. So you have this rich imagery, but God is the shepherd. In fact, in Ezekiel 34 that I read a couple weeks ago, there God will one day search for, seek, gather, bring back, lead, feed, judge, and rescue the sheep. And so there's a rich metaphor that God is pictured there in his glory as a shepherd. What's interesting is you come into the New Testament in Luke 15, the shepherd is seen there going after the lost sheep and the shepherd is no other, none other than God in the person of Jesus Christ who goes after, searches for, finds, carries back and restores the lost. And so you have this rich imagery. And as we come into John chapter 10, The good shepherd that was foretold in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, and I'll say this later, I am the good shepherd. In other words, he's using one of those I am statements. And you know that those I am statements are declarations of deity. I am who I am. God used that as an expression of his character. In the New Testament, Jesus says that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am here the door of the sheep. And I am here the good shepherd. He is making himself and giving himself equality with the person of God. You say he is? Well, yes. Glance down in your Bible at 1030. He said there, I and the Father are one. And you'll notice what the response was in 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And obviously they were going to stone him because of the declaration of that claim of who he actually is. So here we've been studying John chapter 10. And we've been studying it along two lines of thought that reveal to us why Jesus is the good shepherd. He claims to be the good shepherd, but why is he the good shepherd? What has he done that would bear this title? Okay, two lines of thought. And the first one we've looked at in the weeks past is the description of the shepherd. 
the description of the shepherd, and it's in 10, 1 through 6. And we weren't trying to make application there. We're just describing what Jesus gave in the metaphor. He said there that truly, truly, remember, he gave a solemn pronouncement in 10.1. He said, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door. Now, remember, we said that a sheepfold was, a, there were two sheepfolds. One was in the village and one was out in the pasture. The one in the village was, was built with bricks and it was a, kind of in a block segment there. And it wouldn't just be one shepherd's flock. There were a number of shepherds in that particular village, and they would bring their sheep, each of those shepherds, into this sheepfold. The door would open, and they would hire a doorkeeper, as it says in 10.3, and the sheep would go in, and a number of sheep would be in there. I mentioned to you last week that the, that the shepherd maybe having a sheep, don't think in terms of proportion as a big one, they probably had 20 to 30 sheep. And so that maybe there were various shepherds in this village. They would come in at night when they weren't traveling far and put their sheep, their sheep into the sheepfold. It says, look in verse 1, by the door. But he said, but the one who climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, if he doesn't come in by the door, he doesn't belong there. He's obviously a thief and a robber. He's climbing over, it says there. He climbs in another way. And obviously our Lord's going to make a... Um, an application there that these thieves and robbers back up in chapter 9 are the Pharisees who don't give glory to God. The Pharisees regarding a blind man who was healed, who had just given his life to Christ. He actually got thrown out of the synagogue. They're coming in another way. But he's just describing this for us. Look at verse 2. He who enters by the door, he's the shepherd of the sheep. To him, verse 3, the gatekeeper opens. And I love this little picture here. It's a description. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own. In other words, uh, I, I said last week that the door would open. The shepherd would come in there and he would do something with his voice. And I don't want to try to say what he would do. He would sing a song sometimes. Many do. Or sometimes they would whistle. But whatever it is, that particular shepherd, there may be six, seven flocks Six, seven, you know, herds of flock in that sheepfold. But when that shepherd came in, he gave him his, I, I don't know, he whistled, he began to sing, and then his own, he came to get his own. Look, in verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out, and he had them all named. And when he's brought them all out, in verse 4, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they, they know his voice, and very clearly, a stranger they will not follow. They flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a of strangers, and this was a figure of speech. And you'll note in verse 6, it says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, obviously, they understood the figure of just sheep, sheepfold, doorkeeper, door. They got that, but they didn't know the meaning behind what Jesus was saying. And so then we begin to pursue that second line of thought, And we move from the description of the shepherd to the explanation of the Savior. He he, he starts, in in fact, from verse 7 all the way actually down through 21. He just gives an explanation of the Savior. And we're looking at this in our outline and four statements jump out to us and explain to us why is Jesus the good shepherd, okay? And we said, number one, 
we looked at this. The good shepherd, he is a sovereign shepherd. In other words, the sheep hear his voice and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. In other words, Jesus is really picturing here coming into the sheepfold of Judaism. He goes into the sheepfold of Judaism. He calls out sovereignly his own sheep. The sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. And the picture is they follow him. And here they do so because the great shepherd has sovereignly called them. And we spent some time that here was the effectual sovereign call of God upon our lives. In other words, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in that call. And when he calls, you come and you respond. And that's the human response to the divine call. But secondly, we said he's not only a good shepherd because he is sovereign, but secondly, he's a good shepherd because he is a saving shepherd. Look at 10.7. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And so he there gave, as we mentioned last week, and stopped just a little bit after that, that he said, I'm the door. It is the third I am statement. I am the bread of life in John 6. In John 8, I am the light of the world. And now he makes this declaration, I am the door of the sheep. And again, it's a proclamation. It's a declaration of his deity. And beloved, here's the principle. He's a good shepherd because we have a saving shepherd That is the door to a relationship with God. The door isn't entered because you go to a certain church. It's not entered because you do a certain ministry. The door to a relationship with God is bound up in a person. In fact, look at verse 9 of John chapter 10. He said a second time, I am the door, very clearly. If anyone enters, look at this, underline that, by me He will be saved. In other words, Jesus Christ comes into the synagogue. He meets that blind man. He heals that blind man. They kick the blind man out. They will hear at the end of this chapter, chapter, seek to kill the Savior. But here, he's a saving shepherd. He's the door. The thief, look down in verse 10, comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. He came to give us life everlasting life, and he came to give us life abundantly. And so he comes and he saves us and he redeems us. Look down in chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And so he is a, he is a saving shepherd. So here, we left off there. He is a good shepherd because he's sovereign He is secondly a good shepherd because he is a saving shepherd. And thirdly, he is a good shepherd because he is a sacrificing shepherd. Look again at 10.11. He says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is a sacrificing shepherd. So the reason he's good, he's sovereign. He's saving, but he's sacrificing. In fact, you can't miss this. There's mentioned four times in verse 11. It says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Look in chapter 10 in verse 15. He said, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at verse 17. 
He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Four different times he is seen as the good shepherd. Why? He sacrifices for his sheep. He sacrifices his life for you. So here's the explanation of the Savior. Now, there's an opposite picture given of a sacrificing shepherd. It's the false shepherd. Look in verse 12. It says there in the text, he who is a hired hand. You know, sometimes the King James says, he who is a hireling. But it says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And certainly, Jesus is saying, sees the false teacher coming. So he's taking a metaphor and he's, he's, he's giving us a rich picture. It says that he sees the wolf coming in 12. He leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So picturesque of Ezekiel 34 that the false teachers scatter the flock. And then it says in verse 13 that he flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Here's the picture, the hired hand. That might be if maybe the, as the shepherd would come home, he might hire someone to look over his flock in some way, whether it would have been that gatekeeper or whatever it might be. But the hired hand, he's not the owner of the sheep. It's only a job. If the wolf attacks, because they're not his sheep, he runs. And obviously here, the hired hand represents the Jewish leaders. It represents the false teachers. They are greedy for gain. In fact, their goal, a false teacher, is to, is to drag the disciples away from the flock. But not the good shepherd. He is laying down his life for the sheep. Philip Keller, if you ever want to do any more reading on this, has written a book Not Tim Keller, but Philip Keller. He grew up in Africa and different places around the globe. And he was a shepherd, a real live shepherd. But he wrote a book, A Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd. And he made a bold contrast here to a shepherd who protects his flock compared to a hired hand. Here's what Keller said. He said, I recall vividly the love, loyalty, and the undivided devotion of the Maasai in East Africa to their animals. For the years we lived among them, I never ceased to marvel at the incredible fortitude of these people in providing the best care they could for their livestock. And he said, no price was too high to pay to protect their stock from predators. And Keller asked why. He said, because they own them. He said they had a stake in them. They loved them and they were not hirelings. He said just a few days after we moved into the Maasai country, he said a small slim boy about 10 years old was carried to our house. He had single-handed tackled a young lioness that tried to kill one of the flock. And he said in total self-abandonment, and utter bravery, he had managed to spear the lion. I mean, that's a 10-year-old stud right there, isn't it? 
I mean, it comes in amongst us, and he's like, he's not the hireling. He's not getting paid for the job. There is. And so this lion comes in, and he, he spears the lion, but Keller said the mauling he took almost cost him his life. He said, we rushed him to the nearest hospital, 27 miles away, where his young life was spared as by a thread. But Keller asked, why did he do this? Because the sheep were his. His love, his honor, his loyalty were at stake. Uh, Keller says he was not a hired hand. Beloved, that's what a 10-year-old did for a sheep in his flock. But we're talking here of infinitely greater value, God himself in the flesh, here identifying himself as the good shepherd who comes in and lays down his life for the sheep. Now, no doubt you've heard that many times, that he died in our place, and we sung it today. But one commentator said, and he was kind of quoting some scholars, and there were some biblical scholars speaking about the death of Christ, And they said, well, that's no big thing. He's God. He gave up his body. And some said it's no big deal. Now, obviously, we we know far greater than that. But I would even say to you that there is and was a lot more to that statement that we read in John 10, 11, and 15. In fact, it's bound up in the word life. Would you look down at the Bible again? He, and, and you know I'm always going to point you back to the scripture. It says there, and you can underline this if you want, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you see it again in verse 15, at the end of verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. But, but it's interesting. There's different words in the Greek language, okay? And usually I would not want to quote Greek to you and for you because you're reading in your Bible that he laid down his life. And he did. He laid down his life. But it's interesting that there's a couple of words that he doesn't use to explain that. Life has different meanings in the Greek New Testament just as the word love does. He doesn't use the word bios, Obviously, we get bio from that. He does not use the word zoe. Those are two words in the Greek for life. Bios is just biological life. And zoe, transliterated, if you will, zoology, is the study of life. But I just want you to understand that he didn't use these words. And I think it's significant. He used the word here... Suke, okay? Suke, which is the word that we get for what? Soul, okay? He used the word that represents the whole person. So when Jesus said, I lay down my life, certainly he laid down his life. But he's not talking about the outside of himself. He's talking about the inside of who he is. Beloved, what he's saying here in the scripture is that he gave up his soul for you. He gave up his whole person for you. In other words, and I would never make light of this, but you understand what I'm saying. He just didn't feel the pain of the nails. 
He didn't just feel the thorns in his body. He didn't just feel the scourging in his body. His whole soul was tortured with your sin-bearing anguish that he suffered for you. That's the point. Now, I don't know. I mean, it just kind of hit me new and afresh. Oh, he died. But if you think, ah, oh, he just died, and, he, and, he, and once he died, that was it. Listen, he put his whole person out there for you. In other words, he's the good shepherd because he's not a hireling, and he shows his love for you that he gave his whole person for you. Do you remember when you do in Matthew 20, when it said that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his, what, life, uh, what, a ransom, to give his suke, to give his soul for you. I mean, listen, I don't think I have to say a lot more today, but when you pillow your head tonight, it cost him everything for you. He gave his soul for you. He gave, if, in the Greek, his suke for you. But it's translated life, which is, which is great. But he gives his soul. He gives his whole person. He felt it in every part of his being. In fact, in Mark 10, 45, again, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his, what? His life, but to give his soul as a ransom for many. And in fact, the hard part I'd venture to say, and I'm careful to say this, certainly he was tortured for us, but far greater than the agony that he physically endured is when somehow God the Father in perfect harmony had to turn his back on the Lord Jesus Christ as he bore your sin. But listen, he bore it with his whole soul. He is a good shepherd for the grand reason that he's a sacrificing shepherd. Look just over a couple pages in John 12. I like this, and maybe you'll see it. And it's just six days before his death here in John 12. But he said this in 1227, and I like how it says it. Now, Jesus said in 1227, is my suke. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He said, no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In fact, look over at John 15. Certainly, you know this scripture. You've probably quoted it somewhere. If I said it, you know it by heart. But in John 15, 3, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his, what does it say? It says life for his friends, that someone lay down his. His, it's, it, it is, it's suke, his soul for his friends. Beloved, what I'm saying is, listen, yes, he died. Yes, he physically died. Yes, he shed his blood. But what he's really saying here is that the good shepherd is the good shepherd because when the false teacher comes, he's not going to flee. In fact, he's not going to run from the flock. He's going to protect the flock. The good shepherd is good for the grand reason that he's sovereign in calling us. He is a saving shepherd. He himself is the door. And in this picture, he is a saving shepherd because he gave his life for you. In fact, in this way, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 53, 12, it said that he poured out his soul to death. In other words, you could say that he poured out his life, 
But it says there that he poured out his soul. In other words, this wasn't just an external cross that he bore, but he bore it with his whole person and his whole soul for you. In fact, we could ask that question. Why did he voluntarily, he's going to say later, no one took it from me. Why did he voluntarily lay down his life? And the question is, well, you look back in John 10, it says it very clear there why he laid down his life. In 10.11, he said the good shepherd laid down or lays down his life for the what? For the sheep. Verse 15, and I lay my life or lay down my life for the, the sheep. He did it for the sheep. And, and one, one famous man uh, in church theology said, what's the, he said, what's the greatest statement in all of the Bible? And he said, the greatest word in all of the Bible is the word pair and pair just is simply translated in 11 for us, for us, for us. Listen, as you walk out today, just understand that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his all for you. He gave his life for you. He gave his very soul for you. He gave it for the sheep is what he did. The only way he could save us from everlasting destruction and give everlasting life is by dying for us. And beloved, I would venture to say that his death was the greatest moment in the history of the world as he atoned for your sins. Listen, it says that he's the good shepherd, and here's why. He is a sacrificing shepherd. But there's a fourth and final point here in the text. He's the good shepherd, I say, just simply because he is a superior shepherd. He is a superior shepherd. And and I get that. Look at verse 11, and you know this. He says, I am the good shepherd. And, and, And that, in other words, he's saying I'm superior to all other shepherds is what the word good means. It means that he's in a class by himself, beloved. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than David. He's good. And what the word good means is that he's noble. It means that he's excellent. It even carries the idea that he's beautiful. He is a superior shepherd. He is the excellent one. And the reason he is, is because he's God in the flesh. He's the good shepherd. I don't know if you've ever looked at that when he said, I am the good shepherd. That is a declaration of deity. I am the good shepherd. But as the superior shepherd, look what he says in verse 14. He says, I know my own. And he says, and my own know me. Now, obviously, he's going back to the description in verse 2 through 5. In other words, I've come into the sheepfold. I've come into Judaism, if you will. And as I call, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. But here Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. And that term know there in Scripture describes the marital intimacy between a man and woman in the Old Testament. Here, it describes a deep, profound relationship with two people. It is a close, personal relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. In other words, the shepherd knows us. And it says it four different times. He knows us, and we have a relationship to him, and he does to us. Listen, we are not in a religion. We are not in a ritual. This is a vital exchange between Jesus Christ and ourself. He owns the sheep. 
He calls the sheep. He loves the sheep. He dies for the sheep. My sheep know me and I know them and they know me. It is an intimate, personal, trusting relationship. Listen, Jesus knows you. He loves you. He knows your every trait. He knows your every habit. And we know him and we love him. He gives his life for us. And we give in exchange our life for him. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's no relationship that can pair to the shepherd and his sheep. He knows us as his his disciples, and we know him as Lord. But then this is unbelievable. Look what he does in verse 15. He compares the intimacy of the shepherd and sheep relationship to us to the intimate relationship of the father to himself, the son. This is incredible. Look at 15a. He said, just as the father knows me and I know the father. In other words, Jesus knows us just as the father, as Jesus is speaking, knows me and I know the father. I think verse 15 is one of the most staggering statements to be found anywhere in the scripture. There could be no more dramatic expression of intimacy than that the father knows the son and that the son knows the father. And Jesus is declaring in 1030 that he's one with the father. And as such, Jesus is very God, which is why they wanted to stone him. So the good shepherd is the long-awaited shepherd come in the flesh to give his life a ransom for you to die on your behalf. But incredibly, Jesus says, I know my own, speaking of you, and his own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus, beloved, knows us in the most profound way. He knows our past. He knows our failures. He knows our present hurts. He knows our pains. He knows our trials. He knows our suffering. He knows our anxiety. He knows our loneliness. loneliness. He knows us in the most intimate ways because he's the good shepherd. I still have that picture in my mind that often when he would bring them back from the pasture and they would pass in the door, I mentioned that he would often stop them with the the shepherd's rod and he would stop his sheep and maybe he would say, good to see you blackie or good to see you long ear or good to see you. Maybe some of them took on their characteristic grumpy. I, I don't know, but he, but he would stop them and he would inspect the sheep. He would look for any kind of parasite. He would look for any kind of damage. He would look to see how they were doing. He knew every inch of these sheep and what a picture it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great shepherd and he knows you. You know, it, even sometimes I've been reading a lot about shepherdology. You know, that's what, what they would do with the sheep sometimes. The sheep would scatter and he'd be, you know, given his cadence and his call and they'd be going out to pasture and some sheep just had a, a way to waver and they would waver away and if they, you know, wandered too long, if you will, they could get hurt and they could, they could get lost. And they say sometimes a sheep is so foolish that they'll just put their nose to the ground and they'll just keep going. And by the time they look up, they're gone. And then the fog would set in and they could never find him. And so the shepherd would 
would have to go out and find them and pick them up. And I always remember that picture of, it was on one of Keith Green's albums where he was carrying the shepherd, right, between his neck. And he had the feet over here in the front and he was bringing them back. But sometimes what the good shepherd would do is the good shepherd, if the sheep wandered and he kept wandering, he would break the leg of the sheep. One of them, not all four of them, okay? But he'd break one of them to teach that shepherd that, that, to teach that sheep that, listen, you need to stay by me. You need to be safe. There's danger out there. So he would begin to teach that sheep and he would have to break its leg or the sheep would lose its life. And I thought how the Lord Jesus Christ is in the process of disciplining us. He may be in the process of disciplining you. He may have, have taken something that, that it, it hurts to you. But he's doing that because he's more, he, he more counts your holiness than he does your happiness. And he wants you to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he does whatever he needs to do. And in fact, here, Jesus is the great shepherd. Look at chapter 10 and verse 15. He goes on and he says there, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, he was fathering, he was, he was, he was moving forward in obedience to his father's command. His father gave him a command. You say, well, what command? Look again at verse 18 at the end. He said, this charge I have received from my father. And so he says back in 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. What's incredible here is the father gave him this command. And the command was is the second person of the Trinity who dwelt in unbroken union with God the Father and the triune relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son came down, took on flesh, and he knew when he came down, he was going to die for his sheep. He was the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. And so he, in obedience to his Father's command, laid down his life for the sheep. I mean, when anyone pays a huge price to save us, that Savior thereby creates a special relationship with us. Let me just give you a trivial, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. It's not trivial to some people, but trivial to the greatness of what he's done. But think of the American pilot, Sully, Sully Sullenberger, who saved, some of you remember that, I think they've made a movie of it, 155 passengers and crew on his plane when they were flying over New York by safely landing that plane in the Hudson River when the plane's engines were shut down by a collision with a flock of birds. In other words, he's coming in, he's landing, a flock of birds go into the the engines, and he loses them both, okay, down. So the plane is going down, and he saved them. And on that occasion, the save or actually, let me back up. A year later, after he landed them in the Hudson River, a year later at a reunion was held. It was held for the passengers uh, and the crew of that flight. And on that occasion, the saved passengers embraced Captain Sully with tears. Those passengers were actually a year later meeting Sully for the first time. His saving act created a special bond with those whom he saved that day, at least in his maneuvering of the plane. But listen, how much greater true is it for us that our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. He died for you. He died in your place. He gave his soul for you. 
he had to have the father, if you will, turn his back in that momentary time on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. See, far greater than the physical pain, as great as it was, far greater than the thorns, was the fact that he lost sight of his father, whom he's dwelt in unapproachable glory from all time. But he died for us. This is our sacrificing savior. And here he is. He's the superior savior. Look at verse 16. He says there, he says, I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Well, what is that? Well, obviously that goes back to the Old Testament. He's not talking about just dying exclusively for the Jewish nation. He's talking about also the Gentiles. So look at it again. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, he came into the sheepfold of, of, of Judaism, if you will, and he took out his sheep. He took out the blind man who was grateful. But he says, I have other sheep not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. In fact, all the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6, God says, I will make you, the Jewish people, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So here he's saying, my flock is not just Israel. My flock is, a, is another flock as well. I must bring them in also. In fact, look over just one page in John chapter 11. It's at the trial of, well, it just, it's not the trial yet, but in 1151, you'll go back to 50. Here he's before the chief priest, but one of them, and I'm in 49, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man, watch this, should die for the people, comma, not, he said that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And there he, of course, means all people. And so here he has other people, and he's a superior shepherd, and here's why. Because he brought you into it. In other words, he saved you. He's redeeming. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, yes. But he has other sheep that are not in the sheepfold that he would go out and he would secure and he would bring them in. And obviously, it reminds me of Romans 1, verse 16, when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the what? To the Greek. That's me. I'm Greek. That's who I am. I'm Greek, but so are you. You're a Gentile in that sense. And so he brought us in. In fact, in Ephesians, he talks about there of bringing Jew and Gentile together in the book of Ephesians, one new man. He said, in the place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both in one body through the cross. And so he takes one shepherd with one flock and that one flock is Jewish people and that one flock is, is us, if you will, the Gentiles who are added into that. And he's... It's all one flock. And so listen, he's a superior shepherd because he makes us one. In fact, in Revelation 5, 9, worthy, it says, are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, it says, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that precious? 
This is why he's a superior shepherd. And if you're part of his flock, then praise him for that. And so the father loves the son. And because the son's obedience to the will of the father, Jesus did the will of what the father commanded. In fact, look at verse 17. He said, for this reason, he said, the father loves me. He said, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, it's important here in verse 17, for this reason, he said, my, he said the Father loves me. And it, you would think he loves me because I laid down my life, but I'll take it up again. It's not as though that the Father didn't love Jesus until he died. No, he had a perfect love relationship from him, with him from all the world. But Jesus said in the next verse, he said, no one takes it from me. Verse 18, I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, he voluntarily gave himself. So on the one hand, the father commissioned the son to die on our behalf. He did not spare his son, Romans 8.32. On the other hand, you have to understand the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily died in your place. He was your substitute. That instead of you having the wrath spent on yourself, that wrath was spent on the only begotten son of God. In fact, it's no question that the father loves the son. Look back in John chapter 3, just as we close. But look back in John 3. You you can remember these statements in 335. And the reason I'm pointing this out to you, because I think I've shared with you once a couple months back, that there are some people today writing that the cross is a form of divine child abuse. That's what some... Theologians have said that that the, the cross is a form of divine child abuse on the son. No, listen, there was no other way for us to be redeemed. There's no other door that you can enter. There's no other way that your sins can taken away. But the father commissioned his son to come and die for us. But look at this in 335. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Oh, the father loves him. Look over in chapter 5. Do you remember this in verse 20? Where it says in 5, verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. They're in perfect relationship. It's an unbelievable statement. He loves the son. He shows him all things that he is doing. It says in John 17, 24, the father loved the son before the foundation of the world. And so, beloved, listen, he is a superior shepherd. Jesus was not the victim on Calvary. Jesus said, as you go back to John 10, he said, no one takes my life from me. He said, you like how he said it there in John chapter 10, as you turn back, he said, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, I, I, as the great shepherd, he dies for you. And then he says, I have authority to lay it down. And he says, I have authority to what? To take it up again. He's speaking there of the resurrection. He said, no one took, it it didn't get out of control with the Jewish leaders. He said, I came for this hour. He died for you. It It just comes through and through to us and for us. He received this from his father. You say, well, what was the response of these Jewish people? Look down in verse 19. It says there, there was again, it's not the first one in John, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon. 
And sometimes if someone was said to be demon-possessed, they were, it says there, is it insane? And so some said, why listen to him? Others said they're not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so there was confusion, but there was a response. If you look down at the end of chapter 10 and verse 42, it says that many believed in him there. How about you? What's your response to the Savior this morning? What's your response to the good shepherd this morning? But here it is. He's a good shepherd because he's sovereign. He called you. He's a good shepherd because he's saving. He is the door by which you must enter. He is sacrificial in that he died for you and he is superior overall because he is the good shepherd. We have a wonderful shepherd, don't we?